0: The Accounting Matters podcast lives up to its name. Every other week, we bring you a new episode where we cover vital accounting topics that actually matter to accounting professionals. Each episode, we introduce a new topic and then highlight and discuss the key areas. We're your host, Adam Olson and Zach Smith, and we hope you stick around for all things accounting from A to Z. From Embark's headquarters in Dallas, Texas, this is Accounting Matters, an accounting podcast powered by Embark. Hi, hello, good morning. It's great to be with each of you. I'm Zach Smith, Embark's East Region Market President, and I'm joined with my co-host, Adam Olson, Embark's Accounting Advisory Practice Leader. On this week's episode, we'll be picking up our part two of our restatement series, When Things Go Wrong, Evaluating and Correcting Accounting Errors with the one and only Nicole Harder, a Senior Director in Embark's National Quality Group. As companies are working through their year-end reporting, and year-end audits accounting errors, for better or worse, are something preparers need to navigate. Adam, Nicole, thank you so much for joining us. So before we kick off, and we just finished New Year's, I have to ask, any New Year's resolutions that you both have?
1: Uh yeah. Oh, I always try at least, you okay. know, to start. Mine this year is to be more intentional with the kids, to so, like put the phone down in the evenings. Okay.
0: So less screen time. Yeah. Love it. Less, less screen, screen time for
2: mom. Yeah. Less <laughs>
1: screen time for
2: mom, more for the
0: kids, yes. right? Yeah. <laughs>
1: That's
2: great. Adam, anything? Yeah, so I I made it a goal that I was gonna try to learn a new language <laughs> this year. Yeah. So I'm doing like twenty minutes of I'm doing one of those apps, I'm trying it out twenty okay. minutes a day. To what practice.
1: language?
2: I'm just Spanish since okay. I'm in Mexico, so i I mean I already kinda know a lot of Spanish, so I figured it'd be the easiest one to do. <laughs> that's so. awesome. Yeah. But just try it out, you know, get better at it and, you know, try to learn something upskill. There you go. Well yeah. that's great. Well, let's go ahead and dive right into
0: it. Um, Adam, today we're honing in on accounting errors and how they impact companies'
2: financials.
0: When it comes to evaluating an accounting error, where do companies even begin?
2: Yeah, that's a good question. Just kind of like, what's the first thing that we need to think through? And for all companies that are evaluating accounting errors, the first thing you want to start with is materiality. You know, it's a real critical element of evaluating an accounting error is knowing what is material to your financial statements. And you know, one thing you gotta keep in mind about materiality is it is a, a significant judgment that has to be made and it's gonna obviously vary from reporting entity to reporting entity and everyone's gotta consider their own facts and circumstances when they're evaluating what's material, but it really is kind of the foundation that you then use to evaluate any errors that you might come across.
0: Okay, so before we get into some of those different factors or guidelines, is there just a standard definition that one would use for considering materiality?
2: Yeah, that's a good question. There there is, and so the the SEC staff actually put out some interpretive guidance on materiality that a lot of people or I should say most people in practice use as kind of the baseline for when they're thinking through what is material to their financial statements, and that's really derived actually from a Supreme Court precedent. Um, that the SEC then just you know, interpreted in their, own, in their own words, more or less, on what is the definition of material. So if we think about that Supreme Court ruling, there was actually a statement in the ruling that the court held that a fact is material if there is a substantial likelihood that that fact would have been viewed by a reasonable investor as having significantly altered the total mix of information made available. So said differently, it's more or less something is so significant to the financial statements that the omission or error of that information would impact, you know, a reasonable investor. Uh, there's also some limited guidance out there that you know, the concept statements that the FASB put together that kind of speaks to materiality, but it it more or less does align with kind of this Supreme Court precedent. So like I said, in practice, whether you're a private company or public company, most people tend to lean on this definition from that ruling.
0: Okay, so you keep talking reasonable
2: investor. Mm -hmm. Can you elaborate on who that would be? Yeah, so when you think about reasonable investors, you know, an easy way to think about it is like, who is the user of your financial statements? Mm -hmm. So this could be a person, it could be a group, it could be an entity that's essentially relying on your financial statements for some type of decision-making information. Um, when, When you put people or groups or an entity into that bucket of reasonable investor, there are some like assumptions that you generally would, you know, presume for that group of people. So one is that, you know, a reasonable investor is gonna have at least some general business knowledge, financial knowledge, kind of understand the basics of financial statements. They're well aware that financial statements have limitations, right? So we just talked about materiality. So they're prepared with the concept of materiality in mind. They're audited with the concept of materiality. And then the last one is that, you know, all financial statements include estimates. There's always uncertainties in financial statements. So that's just inherent in financial reporting. And so a reasonable investor as well understands that. You know, when you also think about users of financial statements, you know, it's not just investors as well. So like a a couple other parties to the financial statements could also be regulators. Obviously, if you're a public company, regulators are a big thing. Certain industries report for regulatory purposes. Um, But a lot of private companies, their users are the financial statements. In a lot of cases, are their lenders uh, because their lenders require them as part of their debt covenants, for example, to submit audited financials.
0: Yeah, great point. Nicole, switching over to you. So now that we've got some of the basics settled, how would one go about actually determining if something is material to their financial statements, is it fair to use a formulaic approach and determine a quantitative threshold, or is there something else that we need to be considering?
1: So it does depend on the entity itself. Materiality assessments are not standardized for all entities, and so different factors um, will influence the outcome of the assessment. Oftentimes, companies will only focus on the quantitative ass- measurement of materiality. So. For example, they'll use like five to 10% of pre-tox income, but that only only looking at it from a quantitative perspective um, is not just the appropriate way to think about materiality. Um, quantitative measures used as a baseline can help guide the ultimate determination of materiality, but qualitative factors are also just as equally important. Um, so in other words, an error could be material by its size alone, but also by its nature. So. Um, One lens to think of it through a quantitative lens, and the other through a qualitative, which is why both should be considered.
0: Okay. So does materiality only apply to those amounts reflected in the statements themselves? For example, an error in the balance sheet or income statement, does it apply to the disclosures in the financial statements? How should we be thinking about this?
1: Yeah, so a complete set of US GAAP financial statements includes not only the face of the financial statements, so your balance sheet, your income statement, um, your cash flow, your equity statement, but also the disclosures that support yeah. your, the face of your financials. So um, it does apply to your footnote disclosures as well.
0: Okay. Now, since we're focusing on accounting errors and correcting these accounting errors today, can you walk me through some of the high steps,
1: yep. high level steps? Um, so, step one, obviously, is <laughs> determine, you know, identify what your error is. Um, Once your error has been identified, the next step is determining materiality of those errors, kind of like we touched on. And then the last step is trying to figure out, okay, what's the path forward to correct the error? Okay,
0: let's go ahead then and pick up step two from materiality. Evaluating the error and whether or not it's material, we talked already that materiality can be both quantitative and qualitative in nature do we essentially walk through each of those factors when determining the threshold? How do we think about that?
1: Yeah, that's exactly right. So you want to think about it as a two-step assessment here. The first is determining the quantitative materiality of the error identified, and then step two would be um, determining the qualitative materiality of the error identified.
0: Okay, and since we said materiality is more or less not a one size fits all approach, what are some of the things reporting entities need to think about as they think through whether or not this error is quantitatively material.
1: Yep, so similar to what is outlined by the SEC staff that focuses on whether the amount or size of the errors either individually or in the aggregate are of such a magnitude that they are material to the financial statements. So this could include comparing the amount of the misstatement. So your, the amount of your error with materiality levels, the specific financial statement caption or line item on the balance sheet or income statement or cash flow, um, and then the related disclosures involved, as well as the financial statements as a whole. Most companies evaluate the error or errors um, in relation to the totals and subtotals of all the statements. This is viewed as thinking about materiality in relation to the financial statements as a whole.
0: Okay. And then, Nicole, is there a specific way or method to measure quantitative impacts from the financial statements from errors?
1: Yep, there are actually three acceptable approaches. Okay, They are the iron curtain, the rollover, and the dual methods. Um, The dual method is essentially evaluating quantitative materiality under both the iron curtain and the rollover method. For SEC registrants, they are required to use the dual method. Um, non sec registrants can technically use any of the three, um, although they are encouraged to use the dual method as well.
0: Okay, Adam, switching back over to you, for some preparers who have not had to evaluate errors before, like myself, these terms sound a bit foreign. Yeah. Can you break down some of the differences between iron curtain and rollover method and how we need to think about that?
2: Yeah, let me, let me try to explain just kind of high-level definitionally and kind of how each of those methods work so when we're thinking about income statement errors for example so for the iron curtain method when you're assessing income statement errors you're basically going to look at the amount by which the income statement would have been misstated if the accumulated amount of errors that remain in the balance sheet at the end of the period were corrected through the income statement during that period so you're focusing on all of your errors being essentially corrected within the current period. The rollover method on the other hand assesses income statement errors by the amount by which the income statement for the period is misstated, but it also includes the reversing effects of any prior period errors. So identified misstatements in the previous period that you don't correct under the rollover method then have to be assessed as carryover effects in the current period. So it's kind of looking at rollover is really kind of pushing stuff back whether you correct back there and to the extent you don't you then have to roll over those errors to the next period and accumulate those errors in the current er period evaluation of errors so anytime you're going to evaluate an error against a prior period you're more or less going to have to always use a rollover method to do it Um, which is obviously why, from an SEC perspective, they require the The entities to use both methods, which is iron curtain and rollover, because it looks more holistically at errors in the financial statements. Okay. Now, I think I caught most of that, (laughs) but maybe... You don't have to lie.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Maybe an illustration with a simple example for those like myself to put numbers to some of these concepts might be helpful. So can you go ahead and walk us through an example here of both the iron curtain and the rollover evaluation and how that would work
2: yeah so i'll 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 do my my best here but just to keep it even more simple we're going to ignore a few things so we're going to ignore any income statement impacts that the errors could have um and we're only going to focus on like how the error would be corrected as it relates to the income statements Um, so in my example let's assume we got a company they present just two years of financial statements and they only have this one error that we're gonna talk about. So no other errors that we need to think through. So let's assume this company had a long-term bonus arrangement for a specific employee that this employee would get $100 at the end of four years. So in this circumstance, let's say the company forgot to record um, an accrual for this um more or less this bonus expense and they don't identify it until year four so they're at they're at the end of year four like you know i'm sure this employee's like where's my money and they're like oh crap we never recorded this amount the
0: 25 dollars each year maybe. yeah
2: so nothing's okay. been accrued for it yep. up until year four so first step the company is going to do that kind of nicole talked about is they got a Quantify the error. And so let's assume that this company uses both methods. So we'll look at it under both methods So under the iron curtain method The effect on the income statement to correct this error would essentially be to debit $100 of expense in year four Correct. And then the effect on the balance sheet obviously would be the accrual that we would book. So for $100 We would accrue the expense at the end of year four. Um, If this company only used the iron curtain method, they would not give any look to the prior period impact. So the $75 of that expense that actually should have been reflected in the past three years um, would be ignored. And so there wouldn't be any impacts to your retained earnings. You would essentially have this error being corrected um, in the current period. Under the rollover method, the effect on the income statement in year four and year three, because we're presenting two years of financial statements, would essentially be a debit of $25 expense for each of those periods, because we would have to reflect years three expense, years four expense, and the balance sheet effect would essentially be- The an full acc- 100. It'd be the full 100, but it would be an accrual, so you would have an accrual, like an accrued liability for the bonus in year three for 25, another accrued liability in year four for 25, but then your opening retained earnings balance essentially would have to reflect um, a reduction in retained earnings of $50 for the opening year three retained earnings for what would have been recorded in years one and two, but since we don't present those years, we gotta reflect it in opening retained earnings. So that's essentially what you've got there is um, you're gonna end up with a full accrual of $100 at the end of year four, but the expense itself would have been pushed back to the two years and then the opening retained earnings for the remainder of the expense.
0: So Adam, it sounds to me in this situation, the iron curtain method is much more straightforward and easy. Why wouldn't a company pick that method all the time? And what are some of the, like, what's the pros and cons between both? Why wouldn't I go Iron Curtain versus the rollover? Is it because of well, showing two years of the financials? Yeah, so
2: holistically, well, obviously, like, SEC registrons have to use both methods, so they don't have a choice. So right. they're always going to have to evaluate both methods. The Iron Curtain is one way to look at an error, but it is it has limitations. And so the limitations are when you've got multiple years of prior period impacts or potentially you've got carryover effects that aren't being evaluated in the current period. So there are limitations to it. Um, so if it's
0: a singular
2: year error- Correct. Iron curtain is where you would go. You, you might more likely see it- this is a multi-year
0: impact, you have to essentially use rollover.
2: Correct. Okay. Yeah, and sometimes it comes down to private companies. They just think through more or less, like who are the users or their financial yeah. statements? What do people care about? Um, mm-hmm. you know, So there is some judgment there, but like from, while both are you are acceptable for private companies, I think like what's preferable is honestly to use like a dual, a dual yeah.
0: method. Of course. Okay, so once we've quantified the error under whichever method we're using, iron curtain, rollover, dual, do we then evaluate those errors under the guidelines we talked about for the quantitative materiality
2: yeah so you know if you had a hundred dollar error in the iron curtain in year four you would essentially then look at that hundred dollar error compared to various totals and subtotals in your financial statements if you're thinking about it quantitatively against whatever materiality um, metric you came up with and kind of looking at those two in relation to each other if you would figure out whether or not this hundred dollar error would be material or not um, to your financial statements and then similarly for for the rollover method you know if you're pushing errors back to other periods you probably had different materiality levels for different reporting periods so just assessing that against the different materiality levels in each of those reporting periods okay and then as well as your disclosures too so it's not you also got to think about any disclosure impacts if potentially the error like trickles down to some disclosure item as well.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so one last question before we flip back over to Nicole. Can a company change its methods for evaluating the quantitative errors? For example, could they go from the iron curtain to the dual method at a later reporting date, vice versa, etc.?
2: So it depends. Obviously, we, we've mentioned this a couple times already. So, SEC registrants, no, because you have you have one method, and that's all you can use. For private companies, you could um, change your method, but it would also be viewed as a change in accounting principle under AAC 250. So anytime you change an accounting principle, you have to do so when it's preferable. So you would have to make sure the change you're making is actually preferable. So said differently here is... You know, if you were using the iron curtain method and you were like, we want to be more, more holistic, so we are going to evaluate it with a dual method, that would be a preferable change because it's a more holistic view, but you couldn't go the other way. You couldn't use the dual method and be like, this is a pain in the butt. I'd like <laughs> to go back to just using the iron curtain. That wouldn't be justified as a, as an accounting, a change in accounting principle.
0: So one way street here? Uh, more or less, yes. Okay. should be a one way street. Good. Okay, Nicole, switching back over to you, I think I'm following more and more here, but how do the qualitative considerations come into play then?
1: Yeah, so as we mentioned, you could go through the error assessment from a quantitative perspective and determine that it's not material, but again, that's only step one. Your step 2 so your qualitative assessment, requires consideration of the nature of the error and in light of um, various considerations, whether it makes the error material. And SEC staff actually does provide several factors um, which are used in practice when reporting entities are assessing the qualitative impacts of accounting errors. Okay,
0: can you walk me through some of those factors?
1: I would love to, I'm going to refer to my notes because there's a few here. So, um, sab topic one M does contain much of the, um, materiality guidance from the staff. And there are a handful of various, um, factors that could be considered when thinking about your, um, thinking through your qualitative assessment. So the first would be whether the misstatement arises from an item capable of precise measurement or whether it arises um, from an estimate, and if so, the degree of imprecision inherent in the estimate. The next one is whether the misstatement masks a change in earnings or other trends, whether the misstatement hides a failure to meet analyst consensus expectations for the enterprise, whether the misstatement changes a loss into income or vice versa, whether the misstatement concerns a segment or other portion of the registrant's business that has been identified as playing a significant role in the registrant's operations or profitability, whether the misstatement affects the registrant's compliance with regulatory requirements, whether the misstatement affects the registrant's compliance with loan covenants or other contractual arrangements, Um, whether the misstatement has the effect of increasing management's compensation. So for example, by satisfying requirements for the award of bonuses or other forms of incentive compensation. And then lastly, whether the misstatement involves concealment of an unlawful transaction, so not all, Oof. yeah. <laughs> breathe, right? That's a handful, um, right? So, yeah, so not all factors will be relevant um, to every entity, and some may be more relevant than others. So this will, this does require significant judgment um, from management. For example, for a high-leverage company, an error in classification that inflates a company. So interest coverage calculation, which is a key debt covenant, could be viewed as a as qualitatively material. Okay.
0: So a lot of information there, right? <laughs> uh, follow-up question though is, can a reporting entity assert an error that relates to an older prior period is qualitatively immaterial because investors may be less concerned about something in the past?
1: That would be great, right? But no, um, unfortunately not. So The SEC actually weighed in on this in the 2021 AICPA conference on current SEC and PCAOB developments. They noted that they generally do not view the passage of time argument alone as a pervasive qualitative factor because, to to be honest, investors are not solely focused on the most recent financial statements. Um, Further errors in prior period financial statements could be indicative that there are errors in the current period financial statement.
0: So Nicole, how do companies typically document or memorialize these assessments?
1: You'll you'll often hear companies and their auditors uh, referring to a SAB 99 memo, which essentially just walks through um, much of the guidance we've talked about here today. So it does include the evaluation of an error based on both quantitative and a qualitative perspective, and then it also um, will conclude on how the error will be corrected, if at all, based on the evaluation performed.
0: Okay, Adam, let's switch back over to you for a little bit. Speaking of whether to correct an error or not, I think this brings us to the third and last step of error evaluation. Mm-hmm. How do reporting entities decide whether or not a correction is even needed?
2: Now, it's a good question. Um, so there's a bit of a decision tree is how I like to think about it. You know, really particularly thinking about which periods are impacted, if any, you know, there could be a conclusion that none of the periods are impacted, but you really wanna more or less ask a couple questions to yourself when you're looking at your errors. So one, or the first question you should rather start with is, is the error material to the prior period financial statements? So starting with that question, if the answer, you know, strictly is yes, then, you have to restate those prior period financial statements. You'll often hear this type of error correction referred to as the big R, uh, or I like to say the bad R, <laughs> if there is a bad one, uh, because it, it really is, uh, you know, there's a lot of different implications for a big R restatement. Um, if the errors are not material to the prior period financial statements, then you want to ask yourself, are they material to the current period financial statements? So if the answer to that question is yes, then, you more or less have here what is known as a correction done through a revision or a little r. And so in that case, the reporting entity would restate and revise its prior period financial statements, but they would do so the next time that their financial statements are issued. So you know, the next time they issue their annual financial statements, they might in that issuance go back and fix that prior period error. Um, And then kind of the last thing, if it's not material to the prior period, if it's not material to the current period, um you can generally correct the error which is known as like an out of period adjustment and you know that one you do because more or less you say it doesn't matter where i correct this error in it doesn't have any impact material into either period so it it, it's it's viewed as kind of like a new point
0: yeah so adam talk to me a little bit about after a reporting entity determines that financials that their financial statements need to be restated. In other words, the big R. Yep. What are some of the things that we need to be thinking about there?
2: Yeah, the immediate thing is anyone that was relying on those financial statements. So the, your users, investors, you know, lenders, regulators, whoever whoever the parties are, they need to be notified that hey, we've got errors in these financial statements. You should no longer rely on them, and we are going to restate those financial statements, and then reissuance of those financial statements, you know, really needs to be done as soon as possible. Um, And from just an accounting perspective, when you're trying to think about the restatement process, there's basically like three general steps you're going to walk through to, to actually perform the restatement. So the first one is just adjusting opening balances to the earliest period presented. You know, this could be changes to your opening balance sheet or changes to opening equity. Um, Next is gonna be adjusting incorrect amounts in the prior periods and disclosures as well um, to whatever the corrected amounts need to be. And then the last part is really labeling each of the financial statement columns impacted as you'll kind of put the words as restated. Um, And then on top of that, there's just a lot of disclosure you gotta include as well.
0: Okay, so you keep talking about disclosures. Let's dive in there a little bit deeper. What must those
2: include? Yeah, so there's prescriptive guidance in ASC two fifty that you'll you'll want to refer back to, but the general theme around disclosures for restatements is transparency, right? You gotta really put information out there so that users of the financial statements can one, understand a that the previous financial statements have been restated. They can also understand what were the errors or error that caused the restatement. So describing and just you know description of that error itself. Um, And then for each period that's presented, you gotta talk about the impacts to net income and including any tax effect, um, impacts to affected financial statement line items. And then if you report earnings per share, like public companies, for example, you gotta talk about any per share impacts. Um, And then any cumulative effect that you had on the beginning of the earliest periods presented, Yvonne was to disclose what was that cumulative impact to those opening balances. And again, like I said, the, the SEC is real big on transparency. So they, you know, you just gotta make sure that the way you're describing your errors and what happened is just, it's in language that's understandable for users to get their, you know, wrap their heads around as well.
0: Okay, now are any of these disclosures included in subsequent periods if the restated financial statements are presented?
2: No, once you've gotten past that kind of um, period of restatement, so for the subsequent year, year to the correction itself, you don't have to repeat the disclosures.
0: Okay, so Nicole, switching back over to you, I want to talk a little bit about the correction process and how that differs from big R to little R.
1: Yeah, so Adam touched on this a little bit already, but the process differs in that um, reissuance of the financial statements Is not as critical because the prior period financial statements are not materially misstated for little r revisions Um, so instead these financial statements are corrected the next time that they're issued Um, the process for correcting is the same though in that you adjust your opening balances of the earliest period presented You also adjust incorrect prior period amounts and disclosures and then you also provide disclosure in the notes about the errors and the revisions Um, one key difference it with the little r is that your column there's no column headings added or changed um, to the financial statements with your like like they are with your big r's right so for example you wouldn't change the the column headings for prior period balance sheets to state as revised for a little R where you would do that um, for your big R's.
0: Okay. Well, listen, I want to thank you both for being here. I know we've covered a ton of information. Anything else that you want to leave with our listeners before we wrap up?
1: Yeah. So one thing we, we haven't really touched on. um, So once an an entity does identify an error, um, whether it's material or not, they do need to reconsider whether and how the identified error impacts their Um, design and effectiveness of their internal controls. You know, when you identify an error, even if it's not material, obviously that indicates, hey, there was probably a breakdown in the process, right? Um, So once you kind of identified what that deficiency is, um, management will need to obviously evaluate whether it rises to the level of a significant deficiency or a material weakness. Um, This does require a bit of judgment, but it's important to consider because the existence of mitigating controls, you know, and whether those controls operate at a level of precision that would prevent or detect a misstatement that could be material. So just keep in mind that when a restatement does occur, there's probably, um, it's almost certain that the the um, identified controlled deficiency would rise to a level of material weakness.
0: Yeah, g- great point there, Nicole. Adam, anything else that you want to leave with our listeners?
1: Yeah, I guess I would just,
2: from like an SEC registrant perspective, you know, if you ever come across a circumstance where you're going to have to um, restate and reissue your financial statements, you have to remember to got to file a timely Form 8K. Um, in addition to meeting any of the other applicable requirements under Regulation SX. And then on top of that, you'll also have to file the amended form in which those financial statements were included. So if it wasn't your 10-K, you'd have to file a 10-K-A your 10-Q, 10-Q-A. And then the only other thing I'd I'd highlight is just a recent um, kind of final rulemaking that the SEC um, came out with as it relates to executive kind of clawbacks, uh, compensation clawbacks. And this is really kind of just a finalization of a mandate under the Dodd-Frank Act, um, which really relates to um, both big Rs and little r restatements in which companies are, one, required to have a policy in place, written policy that it kind of explains the the process and procedures for what they'll do if there are um, circumstances like that and the impacts it would have on both current and former executives incentive-based compensation. for the periods in which those potential restatements, um, or those restatements, or both big R and little r occurred. That's great. Yeah, listen, guys,
0: really appreciate you both being here. Um, A lot of great insight here for our listeners as they are working through year-end reporting, year-end audits. Hopefully they don't experience (laughs) any errors uh, that require big R, little r, um, or any of these restatements. Uh, But hopefully this provides a little bit more context and guidance for them as they uh, navigate this landscape. So um, to our listeners, thank you so much for joining us uh, for this week's episode of the Accounting Matters podcast, powered by Embark.
1: This podcast is for general informational purposes only. Embark makes no representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of the information contained in the podcast series, and it should not be used as a substitute for consultation with professional advisors. Information discussed in our podcast may also be superseded by new guidance or as new interpretations emerge. Listeners are cautioned to carefully evaluate any relevant subsequent authoritative guidance issued.